this is Family Office Intel at Dentons, the place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actionable ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the modern family office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of Family Office here at the firm. Today is a conversation with David Clark. David is the founder of Integris Aviation. He has a dual aviation major from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University and has been in the aviation industry for over 30 years in a variety of roles. He brings a a unique uh, blend of both technical expertise, selling and transaction knowledge, and working with uh, family offices and some of the largest companies in the world on in this space. Today's conversation will cover a variety of areas, including uh, how you can make decisions around private aviation, what types of private aviation are out there, the human capital areas uh, around private aviation sustainability, and then some general feedback in terms of uh, overall strategies that family businesses, family offices, and, and corporations should be thinking about when they look at this topic. All right. So, uh, David, thanks uh, thanks again for joining. So, give us a little background uh, on how you got into this space in general and started working with family offices. Well, Eddie, thank you so much for the opportunity to visit with you and the audience today. You know, I got my start in this uh, aviation business um, quite a quite a while ago in the mid-80s when I went to school in Daytona Beach, Florida at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, which is uh, the top aviation university in this uh, in this industry. And at the time, you know, like a lot of kids coming out of high school, you know, my dream was to become an airline pilot and really be on that side of the commercial aviation um, space. But, you know, as time went on, I really began to gravitate more towards the management and the private aviation side. So I spent about 15 years of the first 15 years of my career on the on the operational side, managing flight departments, doing some flying, uh, accumulating knowledge, and in the last 15 years has been on the consultative and uh, consulting and brokerage side, helping family offices, uh, ultra high net worth individuals and corporations buy, sell, transact their aircraft, but also you know helping them with with the software. So. Not just the hardware, but the software to go with it, the, the strategies uh, to be able to operate and optimize their private aviation programs. So, David, uh, I'm sure many of us are, are tired of talking about it uh, already today, but let's let's talk about the pandemic and what, what did that do to private aviation before, during, and hopefully after? And uh, what 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 are you what are kind of some of the trends that you you're seeing in that space? Uh, as a result, and uh, in, in what you think will happen in the future? Well, it's a great question. It's a topic of uh, daily conversation in our industry. Let me just back up about 12 years, uh, 13 years to the 2008-2009 crash of the market that just devastated the private aviation market. Aircraft lost, uh, some aircraft lost values of 50% overnight. Um, banks were stuck with aircraft. Um, you know, um, manufacturers were stuck with what are called white tails, where they finished building the aircraft, but there's no buyers, and they literally sit on the ramp for years waiting for somebody to buy it. It was a terrible time in aviation. So for the next 10 years, until about 2019, 2020, the, avia- the, 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 the industry had been in this long, gradual recovery from that, um, from that period of time, which, which really spooked a lot of people. It spooked the banks, spooked the manufacturers, the, the lessors. And so they were just really careful 
to you know not overproduce, not overcommit. But the industry was doing really well. And by 2019, we returned to a place where we had a balanced market. We had about an equal number of buyers and sellers. And you know, in the aviation market, a balanced market means about nine to ten percent of the fleet of the total number of aircraft are up for sale at any given time. That's that's kind of where the sweet spot is. And so when when COVID first started uh, coming about, the pandemic started taking off there in the beginning part of 2020, it had a chilling effect on everything. Private aviation pretty much ground to a halt. Commercial aviation ground to a halt. Thousands of aircraft were parked. People were laid off. And it just, you know, for several months there in the spring of 2020, you know, this uh, this industry really came to a, a screeching halt, partly because of the, the restrictions in place. Countries were locking down, requiring quarantines. It just became untenable to try to travel anywhere. And so that occurred until about the middle of 2020. And then things just took off, just like people started moving, especially ultra high net worth families started moving to their vacation homes. And they started living in their vacation homes and commuting to you know their regular homes or to their other uh, activities. But they started spending full time uh, what they normally would maybe only spend, you know, two or three or four times a year, they'd go to, to the, you know, to the family home in, in Colorado or some other place, and they actually were living there. So because of that, they needed mobility. They needed to be able to get around, and private aviation just served a huge role. And it's been on a rocket ride ever since, uh, ever since the middle of 2020. So it's about a year and a half ago. So we've seen just an explosion in charter demand. Uh, charter operators not able to keep up with demand. Um, NetJets famously, for the first time ever, had to uh, create a waiting list of up to 1,500 people on a waiting list to access their their services. Um, many other companies did the same thing. So we just really came into an era of scarcity that the market has not seen in a long time, if ever. And that's the same thing on the aircraft side. People looking to buy aircraft we're also finding that there was uh, overnight a shortage of aircraft to buy. So, you know, 2020, middle of 2020 and on up until now, we've seen nothing but utilization increase and and um, aircraft to purchase or aircraft to charter uh, go down. So, David, does that mean the prices of travel from mid 2020 to today have increased it as well as uh, just equipment and aircraft in general? Or is it, is it bifurcated uh, between the two? No, it's uh, across the board. We've seen charter rates increase, you know, 20, 25%. Uh, we've seen aircraft values increase 20 to 25, sometimes 30%. We've seen that balanced market, which is usually 9 to 10% of the market is available for sale. That's gone down to about 2%. In fact, the last estimate I saw, last data that I saw was 1.9% of the market on average is available for sale. These are drastic uh, changes from what what happened before, what was the case before in 2019 and even the years running up to it. So across the board, we've seen increases in, in the aircraft costs, the charter costs, but we've also seen fuel costs increase. We've seen uh, wage increases because of shortages of staffing. So it, it really has increased quite a bit in terms of uh, the cost to access this type of travel, but the demand continues to be strong and we just don't see the demand curve changing much uh, going into the future. Um, we expect this high demand environment to continue for the next six months to a year. Is there anything that could bring it down? 
all right, or anything that you foresee uh, other than a general shock to the system that nobody can predict. But is there anything that will be tamping it down or, or concerns about uh, conditions in, in the markets or, or, or concerns about interest rates or inflation or any of those kinds of uh, things that could have a dampening effect on it? Well, there are there are a couple of instances where we can see the supply increasing. Uh, one of those is obviously, like you said, some sort of a global shock to the system, some sort of a global economic uh, event that could occur. Um, and that's obviously going to change things overnight. The other thing is a lot of people, <clears throat> a lot of people bought aircraft uh, in the last couple of years who may or may not have been prepared for the for the costs involved in the investment. And so as those people turn around and become sellers, that's going to supply the market with uh, with more aircraft to sell. The other thing is the corporates, which we call you know corporations, they you know have had orders for new aircraft on on the books for years, and those those aircraft are now finally starting to become delivered. As those new aircraft deliver, they'll put up their used aircraft for sale. So that will also put more supply into the market. So we see several things that could change from a supply standpoint. But as far as the demand itself, we don't see that changing much. Uh, you know, it's it's not only, I mean, private aviation is essentially um, random access on demand uh, mobility. It's the ability to go anywhere at any time, obviously within the constraints of the regulations and, you know, the length of the runways and the pilot's duty times and such. But for the most part, you have the ability to go anywhere at any time on your schedule and not somebody else's schedule. And you also have the ability to share that space, that travel space, with just you and a very small number of people that you've that you've that you've authorized. Uh, unlike commercial aviation, where you're in with 150 strangers that you know you have no idea what their what their medical conditions are like, and you're exposed to that. So let's talk about that mobility factor. So how do you go to make that decision? Uh, and make that decision point between going and flying and uh, with a commercial aviation, whether it's business class or first class, and saying, you know what, I want to dip my toe into private aviation or, or go all the way. What's kind of a threshold uh, and how people tend to get started around that decision-making process? Well, there's essentially three things that need to happen for somebody to access private aviation. Number one, they have to have the means. Obviously, it's uh, it's not the most inexpensive way to get around um, they also have to have the need. So they have to have the need to be in different places. So multiple homes, um, a business that's expanding, you know, maybe maybe a principal has sold his company and now he's speaking. He's on the board uh, for three, four or five different companies. You know, maybe somebody is, is on the speaking circuit and involved in uh, charities. Um, there's just a number of reasons why, it's, why a family would would need to get around, not to mention the shared amenities that they have, the homes and the apartments and such, that they have a, a you know, that they have a, a need to get around. The third thing is desire. Some people have the means, they have a need, but they have no desire for whatever reason. They think it's ostentatious. They think it's, you know, the, the impact on the environment. Maybe they're just a little more conservative. You know, they pride themselves in writing coach. You know, there's always that type of person that, you know, runs a billion dollar company and they're their claim to fame as they ride in the back. And that's fine. But when you have people with this intersection of three things, means, need, and desire, then they're a candidate for private aviation. But then the question then becomes, well, how do you access this? And we call this aircraft resourcing options. So what are the different options 
that people would have when they go to fly private aviation. On one uh, end of the spectrum is just very on-demand, um, occasional use by the hour. And that's where a charter operator, you just rent the plane by the hour and you know you prepay your trip before the trip goes. Um, if there's any difference at the end, you settle up and there's no commitment, there's no ongoing uh, fees or charges, and it's just, you know, you use the airplane, you rented it for that trip, and that's that. And so that's typically when people are traveling, you know, 50 hours a, a year or less. That's so typically. is there, is that, that's an interesting, that's an interesting uh, figure to give. Is there, um, is there an hour figure that you typically use for uh, deciding between what, what type of, uh, what type of aviation to choose from, if not of any? I think that's an interesting uh uh, thread to, to discuss because that might help some folks as they're trying to make that decision. Sure. Well, you know, the, the industry is, has come up with some rules of thumb over time that, you know, if you got into the weeds with the spreadsheets and the numbers and the, you know, the after tax and the before tax numbers, you would begin to see this bear itself out. But for the most part, you know, 50 hours or less, you figure each trip is two to three hours, maybe four hours. You know, that's, that's, 12 trips a year, it's one trip a month. So if you're just an occasional user, or maybe you do several trips in the summer, you don't do a lot in the fall, you do a few winter trips to the, you know, to your home in, in Colorado, you know, 12, 10, 12 trips a year, you're in that charter uh, space. And there's a lot of people in that space. They just, they just don't need it that much more than that, or they don't want it. Then the next step up on the, on the rung is, is the jet cards, you know, the, the programs where you're still not owning anything, you're still chartering, but now you're part of a program and that comes with some benefits. You get guaranteed availability, you get uh, guaranteed response time, you might get some, you know, some discounts on hotels or other uh, amenities, you know, for example, Wheels Up, the company that's, you know, revolutionized a lot of this uh, short hop type travel, they have a whole division called Wheels Down. So when you buy into their program, you get access to the Wheels Down program, which is all the the, the ticket reservations to to different events. You you get you know uh, discounts on hotels, cruises, just all sorts of other amenities that somebody like this would perhaps be uh, restaurant uh, reservations. And so those are those are things that you're going to be able to use if you're part of a program like a Wheels Up or a NetJets marquee jet card or something like that so that we call that the jet card and that's more if you're in the 50 to 100 hours a year so that's kind of the next step up then if you see well we're using it that much but we really want to own a a, a a portion of an aircraft we want to own a fraction fractional share of an aircraft we can use that aircraft to offset our taxes in a company or we just want the consistency of service and so that's where fractional ownership comes in. And that's where companies like NetJets and FlexJet and others have just, you know, exploded in demand because of that level of service. And that's typically if you're in the 100 to 200 hours a year category. And then anything above 200 hours a year, now you're starting to fly enough to where, you know, you could start to justify your own aircraft. And that's where people start to look at either leasing an aircraft that they can control or they actually buy their own aircraft because they can use the tax benefits. They want the same pilots on board every time. They want, you know, when they get in there, they want their their headphones or whatever, you know, other things on board in the exact same place. And they want to know that nobody else has been in there 
when they've when that airplane's been parked in the hangar. They know it's on call, ready for them. It's dedicated to them and their family. So that's typically kind of the breakdown that that we have. That can vary, obviously, uh, case by case. But for the most part, those are some some pretty tried and, and tested rules of thumb that the industry has come up with over time. Those are great rules of thumb, too, to think about both the hours and, and the utility and use uh, as part of it. Even if you're at some of those higher end marks, right, you're at the two to three or four hundred hours a year. Other than some of the things that you mentioned, are there decision points that you've seen families and businesses use as they're trying to decide between renting a seat or actually going out and buying and leasing? Is it Does it just come down to convenience and all the other factors that are there? Or what, it can't be all dollars and cents. No, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of subjectivity involved. I mean, people have different tolerances for sharing cabin space with other people, especially you know after COVID or during COVID. Um, the other thing is these seat you know pay by the seat type things. They're a little more popular on some of the 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 more um, busy routes. So, for example, New York to L.A. or New York to Miami or Miami to LA, those routes are going to offer you opportunities to rent a seat on an aircraft, just like an airliner. I mean, an airliner, you buy a seat and you share it with, you know, people that you've never met before. And that's very similar on a private aircraft, except obviously it's a lot smaller number of people. You know, a Gulf Stream that's going from from San Francisco to LA or to, uh, to New York, you know, it might only hold 12 or 14 people. So it's vastly different than, than, than the major airlines, the commercial airlines. But you know, you're still sharing a space with with strangers, and some people just they just don't want that. They'd rather pay more and have the whole aircraft, um, or they'd rather pay more and own the aircraft. Yeah. And so it's just it's just all a very subjective um, series of decisions that the user makes in order to decide. Okay, what category and subcategory? Am I going to end up with in this industry based upon my own personal preferences, my financial means, you know, the, um, you know, the, 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 the family culture. I mean, there's just a lot of things that go into it. So, uh, but those are, those are things that every, every family has to deal with. And, and of course, the more you fly, let's say you get up to 400 hours a year of usage. That's, that's a lot of usage. It doesn't sound like a lot, but 400 hours is a pretty full schedule. Now, at that point, you're doing two to three trips a week. And so, you know, you get a family with eight or 10 family units sharing the aircraft. That one aircraft is not going to be able to handle all of the demand for that family. You're going to have to supplement with something else like a jet card or a charter program or a fractional share. So that's become a very popular thing as well as families have grown and the base of the pyramid of the family structure has grown. So now you have six, eight, 10 family units sharing this uh, amenity then you need to have other options that dovetail with the the fixed asset, that aircraft that's at the core of the aviation program, but that supplement it in the form of charter, you know, jet card, block hours, um, leasing or uh, fractional ownership. So how do you make a choice on aircraft, right? Is it a chicken and egg? You're, you kind of look at the, the aircraft first and then decide the usage or... I, you know, I'm sure everybody's choice is different is is different on this a- aspect, but it's uh, there's that subjectivity that you mentioned before has got to play into that as well. Yeah, well, there's about 200 models of aircraft available. 
So <clears throat> everything from you know small single pilot turboprops up to long range Gulf Streams and Falcons and other long range type uh, aircraft. So you know the industry has developed a, set, a methodology, and I use this a lot when I'm helping clients to decide what to buy. Is just really start with some broad categories. You know, what's their mission profile going to be? How many people are they planning to carry on a regular basis? How much luggage are they going to take? Um, what's what's the size of the airport that they're going into? Um, you know, uh, you know, what's their price point? What do they want to spend? Um, you know, is it one million? Is it fifty million? So there's just a whole range of considerations. And then it begins a process of elimination, right? So immediately off the bat, we can discard probably 70% of the aircraft, but then there's still a lot of fine tuning that has to get done. What we try to do, Eddie, is end up with three models of aircraft that the owner can then really start, or the, the buyer can really start to take a look at. The family can, they can charter those aircraft. They can ride on them. They can compare notes. Oh, I like this one, but the bathroom was kind of small, or this one was comfortable, but it doesn't carry very much luggage or we want to access the luggage compartment in flight and this model you can only access it from the outside so once you close the door of the aircraft you can't you can't get back to your luggage to pull out a laptop or anything so there's everybody has their wish list um, there's aircraft with 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 the galley in the front of the aircraft some have a galley in the back of the aircraft some aircraft only have one lavatory some have two so there's a whole range of of questions and you know, just to try to get a sense of what the client really needs and wants. And not only for today, but here's a really important point. You gotta look at what you're gonna need three to five years from now. You can't just buy from today and then tap out. You have to basically you know, buy something that you can grow into. And so if the family is growing, if you're, if you're you know, building companies and you're gonna have a need to travel more, then maybe you overbuy now but then you grow into that aircraft as time goes on. That's part of the strategy. Otherwise, you buy the aircraft and you've tapped out on day one. You have nowhere to go, you know, and you know that there's multiple family members having children and hiring nannies and they need to be able to carry these folks on board. And on day one, you're already out of space. It just doesn't make sense. So you really have to sit down with the client, figure out what they, you know, how the aircraft fits in to the strategic objectives of the family. And that's something that's really important. What I would not advise is that first scenario you mentioned, which is to start the aircraft and then try to try to you know pigeonhole it into shoehorns, shoehorn yeah. into what you're looking to do. Yeah, and that happens a lot where somebody says, "Oh, my buddy has a a Challenger 300. Maybe I should get a Challenger 300." And I have a client that 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 is in that exact situation, but now it's the wrong aircraft because they want to start doing more uh, long range overseas trips and. This aircraft just is not capable. It only has one lavatory. It doesn't hold the number of people that want to travel. They have to stop everywhere. And when you're stopping in the middle of the ocean, it's probably some small island with no facilities. And so if anything goes wrong, you're, you're pretty much up a creek because now you don't have any maintenance services available. So, you know, if you, if you have the means and you have the need, you really want to try to go nonstop 85% of the time. So that's another thing that we look at is, okay, what are all the places you want to go to? 85% of the time, we need to go to those places nonstop. So then it's just a matter of looking on the map and figuring that out. And then on that one few occasions a year where they have to make a stop, they either deal with that or they charter. They charter a larger aircraft for those specific situations.
So what about the human capital side of this, especially on the pilot angle? You talked about a shortage before. Um, where are we today on, on, on a pilots? Do we have, uh, is there a, a shortage uh, that we're seeing um, today? Is it something that you're seeing coming down the horizon? Where, where do we stand? Well, the um, the industry is suffering from whiplash at this point in terms of staffing. So what I mean by that is two years ago, year and a half ago, there were massive cuts that the airlines did, for example, to their staffing. Even corporate operators, uh, private operators cut back on their staffing. But for the most part, the airlines did this these huge layoffs. They gave early buyouts to people. Some people were just tired of it because they had suffered th through three or four downturns in their career. And so they just took the re early retirement and, and packed it in. When the airlines bounced back, finally, all of a sudden they had a massive shortage of people because they had gotten rid of, they unloaded so many people, they now didn't have enough people to, to handle the uptick. And so where are they going to get pilots? Well, a lot of these airlines, they've increased their rates so much and they've relaxed their, their work rules and just made life so good that now they're, they're taking pilots from the corporate, the private side, which has rarely happened before. Normally, that didn't happen. There just weren't people that would leave a Fortune 500 company to go work for Delta or leave a Fortune 200 company or a, a, you know, a billion dollar family office to go fly for FedEx. But that's happening routinely now. And so it's, it's, really, it's really affecting the private aviation side. We now find ourselves in a situation where qualified people that can jump in the aircraft and with some training, you know, fly an aircraft around the world safely. Those those types of pilots are very hard to come by. And so rates have gone up. Demand has gone up. Those pilots are they're in the driver's seat. Um, there are some best practices that family offices can use to try to um, not only uh, retain pilots that are already there, but also to vet pilots when they're making a hire and make sure they're bringing the right person in who's going to understand the family culture, who's going to understand the schedule that that family keeps and, and be there for the long haul. It just, it just wreaks havoc with uh, smaller operators when they lose one or two key people. That could be 50% of their pilot force. And um, it's, it's a real challenge right now and something that we're really, that we're really struggling with and trying to not only you know place highly qualified people, but also get young people into the industry, so we have a supply for many years to come. What about uh, on the supply chain side of uh, equipment and and you know um, gear and things of that nature for for aircraft and and real estate hangars? Uh, are you seeing any kind of reverberation or uh, from the pandemic or or other things that are playing into uh, playing into the space? Well, like everything, it's it's um, everything's being stretched to the limit. So, you know, hangar space is at a premium. Um, as far as the aircraft manufacturers, I would say that those the manufacturers have actually fared pretty well. There are there have been some supply chain issues, but it's not like uh, automobile manufacturers where we're talking millions of units, you know, and they have to have a million switches to go into this certain type of car, this truck and. Detroit and the switches are made in Tennessee and you know I mean it's not we're talking handfuls of aircraft so you know they and they've seen this coming and they were able to stock up pretty quickly so I have not seen much of any interruption in aircraft deliveries 
In fact, the aircraft deliveries are at a record. They have great book-to-bill uh, ratios. And several manufacturers, Gulfstream just came out and said that they're increasing their production as well as other manufacturers. You have to realize that just 13 years ago, these manufacturers got slaughtered with, with an excess of production because they had been ramping up from 2006, 2007, and 2008, and they got caught high and dry. And they, they have vowed to never re repeat that again. On the other hand, they have this really strong demand that's going to continue for years. They've got to increase their production. So they're doing it in a measured way. So maybe 10%, 15%, 20% at the most over a period of two to three years to try to handle the demand, but not do it in a way that's going to expose them to too much risk. All right, so David, you've convinced me. I'm going to go buy an aircraft. Uh, Good. And uh, <laughs> where do I start? I mean, you can imagine the amount of things that you would need to know of what to look for. And, and and go through an inspection process to understand the asset that that's in front of you. Where, where do you go if you, you've made, decided to make that decision? And and how do you kind of build a, uh, a proverbial checklist of, of things to, to think about if you're gonna go buy something like that? Well, that's a great question. And I wish a lot of people, a lot more people would take time to answer that question. Uh, there's a lot of people that jump into this, like I said, and they're already selecting an aircraft model or, or talking to a broker that wants to push them something that's in their inventory. It's just, it's a completely backwards way of doing it. You know, if you're, if you're going to be involved in this, in this type of thing, you really need to get somebody that's, that's really knowledgeable who can ask those foundational questions. So I spend at least two or three sessions with the client just trying to define, you know, what is this going to look like and why, you know, um, just because those questions need to be answered. Um, you need to answer why, you need to answer how, and then you need to answer what. And so that's a conversation. It revolves around those themes I talked about earlier. You know, does the client really have the means? Uh, does the client really have the need? And does the client really have the desire? And so if you can work through those and make all those uh, answers to those questions defensible so that when that when that uh, principal is taking this in front of the family or a CEO or a chairman is taking this to the to the board or to the company that, you know, there's some real solid thought through um, answers so that it's just not a shoot from the hip type of a thing. And let's just get something because, you know, we need to travel or you know, our buddy has this kind of an airplane, so we need to get the same kind. There's there's just a tremendous amount of waste uh, that occurs when that happens and risk. So we want to make sure that we're really helping the client by helping them to really understand what they're getting into. And then once the decision is made, then it, then it almost becomes fun because now they can they can know that they've done their homework. And that's the approach that I take. And I think it's really the best kind of approach to take. It takes a little bit longer to come to those conclusions, but um, it, it pays to do the homework at a time. And All right. So, so they've they've done their homework. They've decided, kind of worked, and said what um, uh, you know what kind of aircraft and things. What are they looking for, and what are they looking at that are maybe one or common one or two things that you've seen that could present a problem to somebody looking at a. Uh, particular, and I guess there are 200 different 
private aircraft uh, types. There could be, you know, innumerable amounts. But what are the like one or two things that you've seen that is like a common problem that that a normal people would who are not experienced at this uh, would potentially overlook mistakenly? Well, one of the biggest risks that people take when they buy aircraft is not really understanding what the upcoming maintenance looks like. You know, aircraft every certain uh, amount of time, they have to overhaul the engines. They have to overhaul the landing gear. They have to, oh, some aircraft have uh, these uh, mandatory um, directives from the, from the FAA that they have to pull the entire aircraft apart or a portion of the aircraft and check for corrosion. You know, they might think, oh, I'm getting a great deal on this aircraft and, you know, I can get this aircraft for, for X amount. And they really don't understand what they're ma- what we call maintenance exposure risk. Okay, so it's the it's the maintenance that's going to come due for the next five years on that aircraft. And there's a ratio that we've come up with uh, as an industry. There's a ratio between that maintenance exposure and the the sales price or the value of the aircraft. And the greater the the risk, uh, the greater the exposure, then the higher the index. And you can use that as a tool to say, I'm going to stay away from these types of aircraft, and I'm going to gravitate more towards these other types of aircraft. So aircraft that don't have a lot of maintenance exposure, aircraft that have been heavily invested in, or newer aircraft that just haven't been around long enough to require tons of maintenance. So that's one of the biggest things. And during the pandemic, because of this of this uh, phenomenon that occurred, the scramble, almost a bidding war for people to buy aircraft, one of the things that, that occurred and is occurring still to this day is sellers are putting their foot down and saying, I will only sell my aircraft, first of all, to the highest bidder. And number two, we're not going to we're going to skip over the pre-purchase inspection and uh, you're just going to have to accept the risk. So we've had a lot of buyers buy aircraft where they've never even had the opportunity to examine the aircraft from a technical standpoint, which is a huge no, no. But that's what they've done because there's been such a scramble for aircraft. Those owners could very well get bitten in the future because when those bills come due and and these aircraft require X amount of maintenance, it's going to be a very big surprise to them. They're going to be pretty disappointed. Then they might turn into sellers, but then somebody still has to pay for all that maintenance. So that's one of the biggest areas of risk. I say the second thing is maybe an aircraft that's outdated and needs a lot of improvements. So, you know, older avionics, maybe an older Wi-Fi system, you know, the, the, top, of, the top of the line uh, Wi-Fi system, for example, uh, that's out there, you know, it runs into the multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars, about $600,000 for a top of the line, um, you know, cable high speed type connection on a, on a long range aircraft is going to run about $600,000. So, you know, these are not small decisions. You have to have the right people advising you and giving you all the range of options and then really looking at it strategically, you know? So you want to, you want to be able to make these decisions of when to, make these improvements in the aircraft with a sales strategy in mind. So it's almost like when you buy an aircraft, you already have to have an exit strategy in mind five years or seven years later. So you're timing these different events so you don't get stuck holding the bill. Interesting uh, facts on some of the things that need to be upgraded and, and that point. I mean, you know, the cost there, on that, just in particular on that Wi-Fi system, I think explains why we all still have pretty lousy uh, Wi-Fi on commercial aviation. So that's very, very interesting to, to, to see on, on that and some good points around uh, the maintenance and kind of those costs that can come out of nowhere 
yeah. uh, as you're trying to look at, at certain things. Okay, so you've you've purchased an aircraft, you've you've uh, been able to use it uh, for a certain set under certain set amount of time, and then then you've decided you want to sell it, you want to upgrade it, you want to downgrade it. How do you go about doing that? Well, the the most uh, the most common reason that companies um, and this is more corporations because they have a tax benefit from owning the aircraft. You know, with, when they use the the most common uh, tax schedule that they use is the uh, makers, the modified accelerated uh, depreciation schedule. And so that runs out after five or six years. There's no more tax benefit. So it's been very traditional for corporations to trade up every six, seven years. Um, it's been routine for aircraft to get new paint and interior every six to seven years. So that is typically uh, one of the reasons that aircraft are upgraded is because their their tax benefits have run out. So they need to buy something else. Usually the company has grown or the family has grown. Obviously, you don't get tax benefit if you're using it for personal use. But, you know, they, they, the family still grows, you know, kids get married and have have more kids and the family, the, the number of family units that that family office is serving with the aviation program grows. And so that's another reason that people upgrade. They, they upgrade because they just need, they need, you know, a bigger aircraft. Um, they need an aircraft with two lavatories instead of one. They need an aircraft that can fly 4,500 miles instead of 3,000. They need an aircraft that can, you know, do different things because their needs are changing. And so that's that's a reason for upgrade. Downgrade, you know, there might be a, a, a principal who passed away um, or is getting older. And he's now he's you know, he's graduated over time to a large uh, multi-engine turbine aircraft, maybe a Gulfstream or a Falcon or something like that. And he's just not using it as much anymore. And, and the, you know, the younger generation, they want something smaller, more efficient. So maybe they'll sell the larger asset and downgrade to a couple smaller, more efficient aircraft. And then they kill two birds with one stone. Now they got two aircraft to use instead of one, and they're more efficient to boot. So you see that happening a lot. Um, why would somebody sell? You know, again, maybe maybe the principal was the only one that used it. He passed away. Um, the family doesn't use it that much. Their needs have changed. They just, you know, they're getting out of it. Maybe they just want a charter. Maybe they just want to have a fractional ownership you know, an eighth share with NetJets, um, which, you know, gives them, you know, about 50 hours a year, maybe 100 hours a year uh, for a quarter share. So there's all these different reasons. But at the end of the day, you know, they have to be good reasons. And it needs to be coordinated with their risk picture, uh, their tax uh, specialists. They need to really, you know, get some really good professionals around them to advise them because all of these different disciplines touch on this asset and if they're going to switch either an upgrade or a downgrade or selling or selling it to a bank and then leasing it back um you know there's all different situations that occur they just need they just need to know what their options are and then you know family offices and ultra high net worth individuals i mean they're they're pretty smart people they'll figure it out but they have to be given the all the options in, in a very easy to understand format. And that's that's uh, that's just the best thing that they can do is get that information. Then they can decide. They'll figure it out. Well, what about the information on some areas that are not some of the mechanical or 
uh, technological areas that we've talked about before, but towards sustainability and how families view their use of private aviation versus commercial aviation. Are there, uh, what, what things have you seen uh, on your end in terms of uh, families being innovative around trying to match their sustainability outlook, their perspective on the world with their use of private aviation? Well, commercial aviation, aviation worldwide only contributes to about 2% 2% of emissions, and private aviation only contributes to one one-hundredth of that. So we're talking 0.02% of emissions are from private aviation. So it's, it's virtually insignificant. However, we know that because of the, you know, the, the prominence of, of families, the size of corporations, <clears throat> they, have, um, you know, they have a little more visibility in the media and, and, and other spaces. And so, you know, they're, they're a target. They're a target for people that want to criticize their ability to get around this way. So, um, you know, sustainability is something that the industry, the aviation industry, has just really embraced recently and just decided, you know what, we're going to get on board as an industry and we're going to help our clients really understand the range of options they have to either um, neutralize their effect on the environment or even you know, uh, multiply it in terms of uh, a plus. So that's led to the development of sustainable aviation fuel, for example. Sustainable aviation fuel is basically used cooking oil that's then turned into jet fuel. And that is really turning into a, a big uh, business. And it's uh, something that, you know, the Biden administration has put a goal that by 2030, 3 billion gallons of sustainable aviation fuel will be produced mm -hmm. in order to um, supply the airlines and private aviation, mm -hmm. military. Uh, today, we're producing about 3 million gallons. I mean, it's one, uh, one tenth of 1% of the goal. So today, we're just in the infancy of this new type of fuel, but it's almost an unlimited supply. And it has virtually a 90% a effect on um, on mitigating the, the risk or the emissions that that, uh, that an aircraft would have. The other thing are carbon credits. We've heard about these in different uh, places, but there's a number of companies and organizations that have allowed uh, corporations, family offices to purchase carbon credits to also mitigate the effects of, uh, of emissions. So even though it's a really small amount of, of emissions overall, for the family that wants to become sustainable, in their aviation program and feel better about utilizing private aviation, they can do that now. Uh, the National Business Aviation Association, the largest trade association in the industry with over 10,000 member companies, has actually just launched a sustainable flight department uh, certification where you can become uh, certified as a sustainable flight department because you've met a certain number of criteria and you have uh, established a number of benchmarks. That's a really neat thing to have when you're getting the younger generation on board in terms of flying the aircraft, utilizing it, as well as um, uh, preparing yourself for any unfavorable media coverage or you know, making it uh, more defensible with the corporation's ESG goals, for example. What about safety between private aviation and comparing that between uh, uh, commercial aviation? Are there... Some marketable differences there. It sounds like there might even be some interesting technological uh, pieces that you could you could do on private aviation. Um, 
in in uh, in a different kind of fashion, like the, the, the just even on the wireless that you were talking about, the internet that you were talking about before. Is there ways that you can make private aviation even more safe than commercial? Or there's some technological tech uh, tech innovations coming around the corner there. I think it would be interesting to to get your thoughts on that. Well, there's been, you know, obviously the worst case scenario in, in aviation is some sort of a, an incident or a crash, you know, where people get hurt um, and metal is, is bent. And so those are things that the industry has um, looked at for 60 years. Um, regulations have been written in response to major accidents. And so there's, there's some recent technological advances that have really improved the safety of aircraft. One of them is is this um, device called an enhanced ground proximity warning system. It's basically a database of, in, of the entire um, map of the world. And with the GPS signals, this database knows exactly where that aircraft is at any given time without even completely independent from any ground stations that are that are uh, broadcasting to it. So it's, it's one example of a technological advance that has saved countless lives based upon previous accidents where, you know, planes flew into mountains or they had, you know, they had uh, issues contacting the, the ground or other structures on the ground. And that's that's one piece of equipment that's that's come about that's now required on larger aircraft, turbine aircraft. Um, it's, a, it's a piece of equipment, for example, that was not on the Kobe Bryant helicopter. And so there's a lot of discussion in the industry. Should we start requiring that? Because that would maybe have given the pilot warning that he was getting close to the ground, especially in limited visibility conditions. So there are some technological advances. I do have to say that, you know, fraction on the private side, fractional ownership is the safest uh, because they're so structured. Uh, then private aviation is kind of the next, even though we've had a number of accidents recently that really have left the industry a little shaken because they should not have happened. Um, and then the, the, you know, the, the, the sector of, of a private aviation that needs work is the charter side, is the charter side of, of the house where these aircraft are operating for hire. Um, you know, a lot of long hours, inexperienced pilots, uh, you know, it's just, that's that side of the industry has has experienced more accidents than the others. Overall, it's very safe. So let me just make sure everybody understands that it's a very safe way to fly. Your your car drive to the airport will be less safe than than the entire trip in the airplane. I can guarantee you that. But there still is area for improvement. Um, you know, our goal should be zero zero accidents, zero lives lost each year, and that's that is the stated purpose of the uh, FAA and the NTSB, but we've got some work to do. We saw after the pandemic when people started flying again and pilots were coming out of the, you know, dusting off the cobwebs and starting to fly again and, you know, accidents really shot up. And so even though there wasn't a lot of flying in 2020, the accident rate shot up, it doubled from 2020 to 2021. So safety is really important. It's gotta be at the core of anything and everything that a family does when it comes to aviation or a corporation. Um, there's, there's just, there's no, um, you don't get any do-overs and that's, that's the thing. I mean, you're lucky if you do get a do-over, but there's, there's times where you don't, and we just have to avoid that at all costs. And sometimes it does cost, it costs more money for training, for equipment, for a newer aircraft, pay the pilot more, 
hire more pilots. Um, there's a number of strategies that can be used to, you know, to mitigate these things. Uh, but that's where a safety program comes in, and that's becoming more and more uh, necessary and desired by by uh, private flight departments. It's not required by the FAA, but it's something that smart flight departments institute anyway because they're going the extra mile and they're basically meeting the same uh, standard as the major airlines uh, with their private operation. And there's just, you can't put a price tag on that. So thank you, uh, David. And one last question for you is lessons learned. Uh, what's the one thing that you'd like to think about that you know today that you wish you had known uh, back when you got first got started in this industry? Well, you know, private aviation has been around for about 60 years now, 60 to 70 years. We've had really private aviation um, in its infancy all the way to where it is today. You know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of not reinventing the wheel. You know, life is so short uh, to begin with. And, you know, why try to reinvent the wheel or why try to do something that's complex, whether it's tax planning or wealth management or you know, risk assessment or any other discipline. And uh, and the same thing with aviation. Why do aviation without having just a best practices approach? Just do what we know works. Uh, and if people would just do that, um, that's the thing that I've learned is a best practices approach by surrounding yourself with the very best professionals that are out there in different disciplines. You're almost going to guarantee yourself a best case scenario in whatever it is that you're doing. So, you know, I know that's kind of broad, but that's kind of how I sum it up is, um, you know, learn from the mistakes of others and, um, and, and just really practice that best practices approach. You know, get the best people on your team, um, get them together as a group, have them go about things in a team uh, format instead of one person trying to solve everything, really build that team. Um, and whatever situation you have, when it comes to private aviation, you will know, you can rest easy knowing that uh, that due diligence has been done, risk has been managed and mitigated, and above all, safety has has been maximized. So that's that's really the, the parting thought I'd leave you with. Well, thanks, David. And thanks to all of you for listening in today. Uh, if folks want to get in touch with you, David, what's the best way to do that? You know, my uh, email address is david at integrisaviation.com. Um, my website is, is integrisaviation.com. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, David Clark. And my phone number is 952-261-5945. You can send me a text uh, or call me and uh, we can set up a time. And, you know, I like to listen and just hear people's stories and what they want to get accomplished. And I'd love to do that uh, with folks that have questions, big or small. If you have something that you just want to run by quickly or a bigger project, love to talk with you about Perfect. Well, thanks, David. And if you'd like to get in touch with David, you can also email us at familyoffice at dentons.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, they're so inclined, subscribe to the channel, review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. As always, sharing this episode is very much appreciated and probably the best way that you can show your support to sign up for our newsletters and learn more about our solutions and research in the family office space. Check out our website. That is dentons.com forward slash family office. Well, that's it. Bye, everyone.